What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, the Hungry Trends community sat down with Jordan Bramble, co-founder and chief technology officer of Local Kitchens, a next-generation food platform that helps local restaurants scale their pickup and delivery through a network of suburban-centric micro-food halls. In this episode, we'll chat about Local Kitchen's proprietary tech powering its online and offline guest experiences, how it stands out from traditional ghost kitchens, and the future of food prepared outside the home. Alrighty, I'm very excited to be joined today by Jordan Bramble. He is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Local Kitchens, a modern food platform helping the best local restaurants expand their pickup and delivery to new cities through its network of micro food halls. Prior to Local Kitchens, Jordan held engineering and data science roles everywhere from the White House to fast casual restaurant Kava. Jordan, great to have you on board. Matt, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to have you here. I've I've felt very privileged to have uh, kind of see see the growth of uh, local kitchens firsthand after writing kind of I think the inaugural piece on it last summer. So you guys have come a long it was way. It's a great piece. Thank you. Um, going from you know a lot of different iterations to now seven locations throughout the Bay Area and quickly expanding. But before we get into kind of all the nitty gritty stuff that we love to talk about. I always ask everyone to kind of go and talk about their background. And you have a very interesting background, having worked in hospitality and also at the USDS, the United States Digital Service, as well as a few, a handful of other uh, venture-backed companies. So I'm really kind of curious if at a high level, you could just take us through the evolution of uh, how you got to where you are now and and how you kind of linked up with your co-founders from DoorDash and started Local Kitchens. Totally. So, you know, my background is in software engineering and data science, and um, I was living in D.C. I lived in D.C. for 10 years, and, uh, you know, it was around 2015, 2016, Kava was was really one of, like, the darling companies in, uh, in D.C., and it just raised their first venture round. At the time, Sweetgreen was also based in D.C., too, before they moved their headquarters to uh to Los Angeles. And uh, I would actually describe D.C. back then as, like, a, like a fast, casual mecca, right? Like, Chipotle was doing their... Um, you know, they had a great team there. They were also doing their uh, Southeast Asian concept in DC and pizza is based there. And Kava was really just this darling company. And I had this growing like intrinsic motivation and obsession with food where I just think there's some, something so special about the kind of delightful consumer experiences you can build in, in food businesses that are just so hard to do in other spaces. And so I actually joined Kava as the first data scientist right after their their, their first venture round. Really enjoyed my time there. I was actually in grad school at the time. I was studying machine learning at Georgetown. And um, about the time I was graduating, uh, this just really awesome opportunity came along serendipitously to, to join the White House and work at uh, the U.S. Digital Service. And so it's kind of you know, putting my machine learning background together with some really large, you know, complex problems that affected tens of millions of people. And I got to work with a lot of great people there, too. You know, I was working with um, someone who was in the first 10 engineers at Stripe. Uh, Matt Cutts from Google was actually my manager for a while, and he's now uh, an angel investor in, uh, in in our current company. So, um, really enjoyed my time there too. And that was that was a one year appointment. And so, about the time that uh, that was up, my my, my now wife uh, she was finishing up grad school, and uh, you know we both wanted to move out to the Bay Area, and uh, I really wanted to break into startups. That was what I saw as like the next path forward for me, and I was always motivated to eventually find uh, found something. And so I joined a company called Atrium uh, around their Series A as well. Started out in machine learning and eventually became uh, an engineering manager there. And uh, 
my co-founder, John, who was one of the first engineers at DoorDash, uh, he had gone through YC and uh, we actually ended up acquiring his last company. And so he became my product counterpart at Atrium. And um, I remember this, I remember this vividly. We went uh, on a hike together back in 2018 and I was telling him about my passion for food and how I eventually wanted to start a company in the food space. And it really stemmed from this intellectual problem of how, how, how the internet is changing our relationship with food. And, uh, you know, he had been thinking about the exact same problem having come from DoorDash. And he had told me, you know, I want to start something in the food space as well. And so we worked together really closely for two years. And then he introduced me to our other co-founder, uh, Andrew Monday, who was the first employee at DoorDash. So he led operations at DoorDash for about three years. And, um, you know, we felt like we had the perfect team. We had tech product and an operations person, and we all had this passion for food. And so uh, we got started on it in 2020 and just, you know, started researching the space. Amazing. Love that story. And uh, yeah, it's interesting how like, you know, you talk about like the United States digital service and all these other things and how like disparate they are, but it all seems like um, it, they're all kind of interconnected in terms of your mentors and investors and uh, the breadth of the problems you're solving. So it's very interesting to hear that. Totally. I, I kind of want to dig into to where we were in 2020 when we, I guess when you and I first connected, you know, looking at like it, the pandemic had just broken out. I was, I was like holed up in my parents' place and I was afraid to meet anybody. So we got on a phone call, but you know, you had no real virtual brand portfolios really emerging yet. I think that were that prominent, but you had, you know, cloud kitchens and, you know, essentially every restaurant became a ghost kitchen overnight. So yep. I guess my, my question is, you know, how, how did you look at what was going on in, in kind of that in 2020 when you started and looking at the problem space and saying like, okay, what were the, the jobs that needed to be done that weren't getting filled by the market at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So, you know, we had, and, and, you know, this even goes back to my time at Kava in 2016, where, you know, we knew the internet was changing our relationship with food. And that was true even before the pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated a lot of things, right? It, it was also just this this time where I would say like, there was just this explosion of activity in, uh, in the infrastructure side of food and, and retail restaurants. A lot of it kind of focused around the ghost kitchen concept. And we really aimed to come into this with a fresh perspective and like really get down to first principles on everything and just really build a deep understanding across the whole space. And um. That's actually how I think we first came across you. Uh, I would read a lot of your work to just kind of learn like what was going on in the space. So, you know, shouts out to you and Hungry TV for that. But uh, we went really broad. I mean, we were doing everything from like reading, you know, 10Ks from broadline distributors to like, you know, seeing all of the different permutations of things in the ghost kitchen space. And I would say we did a lot of research uh, from on the consumer side of things as well, actually, when uh, when we first met you. Um, we were kind of on this road trip down to Southern California where we were just like trying out all the different stuff in the space and really trying to understand it from a consumer perspective. Uh, but we were also doing a lot of research with local restaurant brands as well. We always knew that we wanted to help kind of local and mid-market merchants. And uh, one of the things that we would do is we would just ask them, what do you think about ghost kitchens? Or, you know, why don't you do a ghost kitchen? How come you're not already growing this way? And, um, you know, long story short and all of that, what we learned is that the consumer experience is so important, right? And the internet does not remove remove that importance. And I think, you know, a lot of people have seen ghost kitchens as a new way to sell food on the internet, but have lost sight of the consumer experience along the way. And, you know, maybe more broadly, the internet is scaling food brands, right? Food creators are finding new ways to build their brand, but we're still in this nascent era of the infrastructure itself that, that actually allows you to scale the food. And 
what I mean by that is food is a very special product, right? It's not something that we just put in a box and ship it anywhere across the country. The, the distribution center and the factory, so to speak, have to be one place close to where people live. And, um, you know, I think another insight here is there's only so many customers you can, you can serve within a five-mile radius of one of these, right? And so to build a truly great business, you have to keep people coming back for more and more. Uh, and it's the guest experience that ultimately drives that. Uh, and it's about being able to serve multiple use cases. One of the things that we learned is that delivery is just not enough, right? It's a, it's a, it's a great value prop when you're home, you're watching Netflix. It's great during the pandemic, serves a ton of use cases, but uh, sometimes you're driving home from a road trip. Sometimes, you know, you and your significant other are taking your kids home from practice. And uh, what's more convenient is just to pick up something yourself. And so to really build a deep relationship with the consumer and, and, and grow through retention, uh, you have to be able to serve many of people's need states. And I think food is very unique in this way that uh, we're very fluid in what those need states are. We don't just have a single job to be done. Uh, it actually changes throughout the day and, and throughout the course of our week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say looking looking at the data that I've seen, you know, delivery is probably the smallest share of all off-premise sales and you have, you know, drive-through is yep. enormous and then it's takeout. Exactly. So, totally like gets lost in these uh, headlines in the beginning of the pandemic where it's like delivery, delivery, delivery. Yep. As you were going and talking to a lot of these local merchants, like what were those conversations like when you, when you asked them about like, you know, would you go and sign a lease at cloud kitchens? Like were they pushing back about the upfront costs or the rent or the, the know-how? Like what were some of the biggest kind of challenges that you saw when it came to, you know, those kinds of conversations about getting them adopting, you know, getting them to adopt ghost kitchens? You know, one of the things that we heard about the pure, like, you know, real estate only ghost kitchen models was um, it's almost the same amount of work as opening a restaurant, right? You still have to hire roughly the same amount of people. You know, you're still procuring and getting equipment installed, still training people. So it's, it's effectively still running a restaurant, right? And so what a lot of people said was, if I'm going to be doing all this work, I might as well open a real restaurant that's going to do, <laughs> you know, larger unit volumes. And I think one very, very real value prop of ghost kitchens is that um, they have low fixed costs to get open. And so I think that's, I think that is a great offering for the, you know, the people that are really just entering uh, the, the, the food industry for the first time, but people that believe in their concept, people that feel like they have a proven brand that they can start scaling, you know, they're thinking more about like, what kind of money is this going to make over a 10 year period? And what, right. you know, what is the EBITDA going to be versus how do they save on upfront fixed, fixed costs? Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, what's your AUV? What's how much does it cost to open and to break even? That sort of thing. So, so now fast forward, you have this pretty, you know, developed model. You've you've gone through a bunch of different iterations in the early days, but I guess can you talk to us about the landscape and really break it down and compare yourself to other licensed players like Franklin Junction or Reef or All Day Kitchens and kind of how you fit into that landscape and what sets your business model and value proposition apart? You know, I think culturally it's, it's our, it's our focus on the end guest experience. And so uh, what that means operationally for us is we are, uh, to my knowledge, I mean, the only player in the space that has, has chosen to go after the entire full stack. And uh, what I mean by that is it's everything from supply chain to real estate, to kitchen operations, to digital ordering, fulfillment, and, and even customer acquisition and marketing, Right. So that allows us to, to to deliver a better customer experience because we we you know we control all the inputs and how they come together. Mm -hmm. But also from the perspective of our brand partners, uh, it, it creates an incredible turnkey offering. So you license your brand and your recipes with us, and you know you get a royalty paid out to you on a predictable basis. Mm -hmm. And so 
that kind of turnkey expansion is highly attractive to our brand partners. Um, you know, anecdotally, we've 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 heard things from food entrepreneurs who just can't wait for there to be enough of this at scale where they can just treat this as their primary growth channel. People see it uh, as superior to franchising, even. Interesting. So it's basically like the, all the benefits of you know essentially licensing your brand to a player like a Reef Kitchens or whatnot or a Franklin Junction, but with the kind of added experiential takeout curbside pickup model, uh, the in-house ordering, plus all the tech that comes alongside that. Is that kind of accurate to say? Yes. So we've invested very heavily in just creating uh, an intuitive and delightful handoff and fulfillment experience for our guests. You know, we've invested in the interior design of these spaces. Uh, We tend to be in nice neighborhoods and resident areas with residential density. And so what we hear from a lot of, you know, I think uh, our our brand partners uh, in Northern California are some of the best partners we could possibly be working with. Uh, And I think, you know, I think their customer following really speaks for itself there. The thing they really like about us is that they trust us with their brand. They they trust us to be serving uh, their customers. And in doing that, we get to work with the best brand partners, which then helps us acquire customers. We call our customers our guests. And then, you know, that's a virtuous cycle. It creates a flywheel there. We have the guests, then that allows us to go work with 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 uh, the best brand partners. So you know, it's it's really a, a a positively reinforcing feedback loop. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, one of the things I found really interesting when I you know was writing that first piece on you guys from your first location, I think it was was it Cupertino when you first where you first launched, was the, you know this idea of like having greeters and you know how to really build that flywheel of like the the customer that drives home on the way for, to work from work or from Starbucks or wherever they're going in this post pandemic world and sees this like awning stops in, loves it and then orders again online. And that kind of builds that kind of trust in in terms of this kind of neighborhood outpost model, I guess. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how important it is to have that kind of micro, how you even came up with this term micro food hall? Because everyone's saying virtual food hall and, you know, feed the whole family, Kitchen United mix and Reef is doing virtual food halls in the in the airport. And, you know, this is a term that's being loosely thrown around, but you guys are actually investing in building a delightful user experience and in the, in the sense of like hiring staff that's just dedicated to maintaining that front of house space and picking, you know, sites uh, very, very thoughtfully. Yeah, I, th- I think it's incredibly important. And it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier with how the internet is changing our relationship with food. People have the same expectations for food quality that they've, al- that they've always had, right? What's really changed here is that uh, there's just a broader diversity in what people expect from a fast food diet now. It's no longer just, you know, burgers, pizzas, French fries. You know, people want Indian food. They want Thai food. They want uh, Mexican food. They want Mediterranean food. And I think in the suburbs specifically, where we tend to focus, a lot of the fast food supply is, is, is um, you know, it's the, it's the mid-century quick service restaurants. And then we're going through this demographic shift right now where Millennials, uh, you know, who when they graduated college, they moved into the cities. They're now getting married, having kids, buying their first home in the suburbs, and you know their taste profile is just is just totally different, right? They want a lot of the great options that they had in the city, and so you know there's this there's this gap that exists in the market right now between what suburban consumers want and 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 what's available, and um, we exist to fill that gap really, and so. That's how I think about the micro food hall model from the standpoint of the consumer, right? We're bringing a you know, great new selection in their neighborhood that, that, that actually matches the diversity that they've come to expect. 
And then from the standpoint of uh, the brand partnerships, the way I think about this is, you know, once again, going back to the, to, to the internet, the internet has really accelerated change in consumer preferences. And I think, I think that is going to continue. And so uh, what I think you will see is uh, brand itself just endures. Uh, it doesn't endure the way, that it, the way that it used to before this sort of Cambrian explosion of food that, that the internet has created. And so the equation, you know, of signing a 10 year lease as a single concept brand, it just doesn't make sense in the way that it used to. And so I think the world that we're heading to is food entrepreneurs, you know, they create brands and they will probably create multiple brands and rebrand multiple times throughout throughout their life cycle. Uh, I think the market is going to require food entrepreneurs to be increase, increasingly iterative. And so there's just there, there's just this demand for a platform play like us. Very interesting. I mean, I, I really I think it's fascinating how you take concepts that people recognize from a city like San Francisco and then bring them to the suburbs. So it's like, you know, and, and I think the timing of that with COVID, yep. you know, as areas like Oakland take off and people are out in these other neighborhoods of Silicon Valley, uh, where they can recognize something, but they can have it within a few mile radius. Um, is pretty mm -hmm. interesting. I mean, I'm kind of curious, like how much of this actualization was driven by like, you know, DoorDash's suburban expansion and your insights from your co-founders, John and Andrew, who were very early there, who, you know, obviously took over Uber Eats, but the, you, you know, uh, one of the key pillars of that strategy of, of gaining that market share was, was suburban expansion. Yeah. So d definitely influence how we thought about it. I mean, we thought about this business as, as something that's going to be focused on the suburbs from, from day one, from the very beginning. And, um, you're right that that was that was one of the primary insights at DoorDash too, where they realized that the competitive intensity was lower in the suburbs. You tend to be more focused on on families, so the AOVs are higher, and then the the value and in convenience to the consumer is so much higher in the suburbs as well, because especially for delivery, right? But then it tends to be automobile centric, so you can do things like digital drive through. Mm -hmm. You have off street parking, so it makes digital pickup even easier. Um, whereas contrast this to the urban centers. A lot of times you can just walk out of your door and get something very conveniently. But it's also a harder market to operate in for, for, for third-party delivery marketplaces as well. So it definitely had an influence there. So when you're talking about like the opportunity for like a local kitchens in the suburban market and where this consumer, you know, this kind of millennial consumer is just buying their first house and all that. You know, like, I guess you're, you're really kind of going after, I guess, like a Panera, the Paneras of the world, that kind of like fast casual QSR kind of selection that would typically be found in a strip mall, but, you know, essentially providing that long tail of those urban concepts. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. We're a platform for the, uh, for, for, for the long tail. Awesome. It would be, it'd be great to, to kind of hear a little bit more about some of those brands um, and maybe, you know, case study, like success story of, of how they've been able to successfully scale. And I'm also really curious, you know, you have some CPG companies like uh, Humphrey Slocum, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, um, Ice yep. Cream, that's also selling through your part, you know, through your platform kind of as like a micro fulfillment use case uh, or as like an add-on for the you know, mix and match menus, but kind of curious if you can talk us through some of like the case studies of, of some of the best performing brands on the platform. Yeah. So we have several brand partners that have, that are doing more than a million dollars in annualized sales uh, with us. We have a couple that have exceeded 2 million in sales wow. and that's only going to grow as we do more locations. We have seven locations today and uh, you know, we're opening our eighth next week and are going to continue to grow throughout the year. So you know, we'll see that more and more. And I, th I think this is incredibly powerful uh, for the founders of these concepts themselves, because um, 
you know, the royalty that they get paid out from us is, 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 is high margin for them, right? You know, we have people that are getting more than 100K a year in royalties from us. Fascinating. And so when you go into a new market, like, do they have the first right of refusal as far as like this? Or are you trying to curate first and then come to them if they if you think it's a good fit? Or like, how do you go about, you know, maintaining some of the existing uh, partnerships, um, but also opening it up a new market to to new kind of supply? You know, it's a true partnership, right? So we have uh, brand partners who maybe they don't want to be in one of the locations we're opening because they have a retail establishment so close by. But um, mm-hmm. we've heard from other brand partners that, you know, they, they want to be in a location that's really close by to theirs because they either, you know, they feel like they have that excess demand or they're interested in pursuing like a franchise strategy or some other ways to, to expand themselves. And they, they, you know, they want to get a picture for what sales cannibalization looks like. But more broadly on an on a assortment, you know, we look at it from a bottoms up and a top down perspective. So, uh, you know, we'll look at retail data sets that give us a picture of, uh, you know, what is already popular in these communities. And then we also try to actually connect with people who would potentially be our guests. We try to curate a customer list where we can survey them directly and see, you know, what is missing in your community right now? What do you wish that you had that you didn't? And uh, we actually will take that data back to potential brand partners in order to figure out, you know, who, who wants to be in these locations? How do we make it all work operationally? And then how do we ultimately curate the assortment for the end guest? Very cool. And so it's all done on, so what's the maximum number of concepts you can fit? Like, so I guess, tell us like, how, how big is each of these micro food halls? How, what's the maximum number of concepts that you can squeeze onto a single line? And like, how does that work as far as the, uh, the procurement of the various uh, ingredients for each of these different you know, recipes from these different kind of concepts? Yeah, great question. So uh, in terms of how to think about our retail footprint, you know, think of us like any fast casual chain that you're familiar with, right? You know, we're occupying the same kind of space that, you know, a Chipotle or someone like that would occupy. You know, in terms of the maximum number of brands that we can do, uh, to some degree, we're still finding that out. But what we found is is, is the sweet spot for us is really in the seven to 10 range. Uh, and we tend to kind of focus around seven. And that's all dependent on uh, the amount of prep and labor required, storage space required, and things like that. So uh, in terms of the supply chain that powers all of this, it's a mix of, um, you know, we get the commodity goods like, you know, lettuce and produce from broadline distributors, and then the proprietary goods like sauces uh, or especially done proteins, we are either getting that directly from our brand partners, their commissaries, or in some cases, we've even begun working with co-packers as well. And that's Another benefit that some of our brand partners have realized in working with us is we've actually helped their own operation make that transition to a commissary supply chain. Interesting. So you almost become a customer of their of these restaurants as well as a partner that's giving them a royalty. So they're making, you know, they, they have two kind of revenue streams there in some cases. To some degree, yes. I, you know, kind of putting on your engineer thinking cap for a second, I'm very curious if you, you know, at a high level, I know there's a lot of technology that goes into all of this and that you have a whole kind of constellation of different uh, applications and modules here. So, you know, curious if you can kind of at a high level, talk to us about what you've had to build from scratch to, to do all the procurement and all the fulfillment of all these different concepts on a single line from the front of the house to the back of the house, kind of how does that all work at, at a somewhat technical high level? Yeah, uh, great question. So I tend to think about uh, our tech across two different varieties. One is, uh, you know, the guest experience or the consumer digital ordering software. And 
tend to be very convicted that we build all of that ourselves. So uh, we have web ordering, mobile ordering across uh, iOS and Android, uh, and we build an in-store kiosk as well. And the reason that's so important to us is, you know, it just allows us to deliver a great guest experience. One of the things that we found through the data is really important is that when someone discovers us organically, they need to be able to find something that, that, that they like or that appeals to them. And so, you know, we can really focus on some of that menu optimization, things like group ordering so we can better support families. And then also just, you know, how we organize the merchandising of the menu itself so that our brand partners can tell their story and really shine through. And, you know, we can also put them put them front and center in, in front of our customers. So that was a big motivating factor for us. And then uh, the thing that we've come to find is, uh, you know, we probably have about 10 times the SKUs as a normal uh, fast casual restaurant. And that varies a little bit by location. But these kind of small differences, uh, you know, another one, like 100% of our sales come from the internet, right? These small differences really change the, the, the importance of different aspects of your operation. So like, you know, in this digital ordering paradigm, one of the things that consumers expect is really accurate ETAs and uh, just setting expectations. And uh, traditional POS systems are not oriented around that. They're focused on a world where someone comes in and orders at a cash register, right? And so, uh, you know, what we found is there's just a, a, a lot of things that, that uh, we benefit from building ourselves. Another example of this is, you know, when you're cooking this many SKUs, you have this this many menu items on your menu, training staff and, and helping them retain information uh, is incredibly important as well. And so uh, one of the early investments that we made that we continue to, to make and iterate on to this day is our own proprietary kitchen display system. So um, that plus our, uh, we built our own Expo app as well. And so those two coming together you know, they really ensure that, that our kitchen team are making the right dishes, the right dishes are going in the right bags, and then ultimately we're handing off the correct bags to the correct people, whether that's uh, one of our guests or a third-party fulfillment partner. Fascinating. Yeah, I can imagine that there's just like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's off the shelf that we talk about. There's so much in food tech, but, you know, when it comes down to yep. the nitty-gritty of actually like, you know, building a scalable platform that powers all these different brands from an accounting perspective, from an operations perspective, from a logistics perspective, totally. I could see it all falling apart and breaking at the seams when see when you guys start to try to kick the tires. Yeah, the, the simplest thing there is like, you know, when you were cooking this many concepts in one kitchen and, uh, you know, you want it all to be done at the same time when people are ordering a multi-brand order, everything has to come together. Uh, what you find is you really want your own opinionated workflow, right? And you want to solve that problem for yourself. And so uh, you have to have control of the tech to really do that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really kind of curious when we talk about like ordering, you know, so you have an interesting kind of value proposition where you have a, you know, mobile app and website. And I believe the app is fairly new. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe uh, early January was uh, when, we, oh, okay. when we first launched. Yep. Okay. It's about six months now. And so you have the app, you have the website where you can do, you know, a family of four can order sushi, Mexican, American, you know, plus some ice cream in a single basket. And then you have kind of the marketplace listings for each of these concepts individually that's kind of in their own silo just for the kind of the organic marketplace SEO customer acquisition. I guess, can you talk a little bit about how strong this first party multi concept ordering is and how you've been able to like transition people from one to the other, if, if at all. Yeah, great question. So, uh, and this is one thing I'm really proud of, you know, our own channels are our largest channels. Um, so the, the lion's share of our sales are coming through channels that we've created ourselves, And, uh, that allows us to build a direct relationship with our guests. And, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, that, that, that this really helps with is, uh, in, 
the real estate that we occupy, we actually benefit a lot from organic acquisition and word of mouth as well. Uh, so there's a lot of people, they may discover us from the street or they may walk in. Their first order with us is, is, is at our digital kiosk. They have a great experience. They find something that they like. Uh, and then they download our mobile app and then they tell all their friends about it. They post in private Facebook groups. They post on Nextdoor. And then we get this organic spread from that. And so uh, having our own direct channels has, has, uh, has really powered that growth. Uh, same thing with SEO uh, digitally. Um, we benefit very much from organic SEO and um, you know other aggregator sites that allow us to link our direct channels as well. So have you been able to see like, okay, people are like, oh, I ordered from, you know, Senor Sisig and, but now I realize that there's this website and there's this thing, local kitchens where it's coming from. And if I want to order something for my whole family and feed the whole family with a single delivery, I could go here to this website or like, is there that, is that shift actually occurring for people or is there some way you can yeah. educate the consumer? So that's a great question as well. Um, and to, to touch on that specific example, we do benefit from co-marketing with our brand partners. So one of the things our brand partners will do is uh, they'll often list us as one of their locations on their website, but link to localkitchens.com for the actual online ordering, you, you know, to, to their own direct page. But as a part of that, people discover what local kitchens is, or in all probability, they pick up the food themselves. So then they're mm -hmm. coming into a local kitchens. And then mm -hmm. that's, you, you know, you mentioned the idea of a greeter earlier. That's uh, one of the things that's really awesome about having a greeter in our stores is they educate these first-time guests uh, about the experience and how it works. And so they have a great experience and we see them coming back for more. I think that's a really fascinating like, you know, thing to point out because it's the, the gap between consumers' expectations online and what happens when they actually go to show up and pick it up if they ever do pick up is, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic was quite staggering when you thought about <laughs> the backlash of like, Chuck E. Cheese, Pasquale Pizza being, you know, like all this was obfuscated. And and I was driving around LA at the beginning of the pandemic, driving to like nightclubs where like Next Bite was text testing their V1 of their virtual brands, you know, out of excess, you know, capacity, like nightclubs. And it's just, it was really fascinating yeah. to see like how low can we go, <laughs> essentially. It's like, <laughs> can we go to a, like a bowling alley that has a like a hidden commissary on the back or like, you know, down this sketchy alley or this is nondescript door with no windows or a cloud kitchen facility <laughs> where, you know, you and I both know what those are like. So it's just interesting to see how this has all kind of evolved. You know, that was, that was one of the things really early on was um, we've always worked backwards from the guest and everything, everything that we've done. We've always tried to build a business where you know, we've never felt the need to hide anything, right? If you, I mean, if you walk into one of our retail locations, the vast majority of them, you can see directly into the kitchen, right? You, you know how when you go into, or when you go through the drive-through and in and out, they have that glass window in between where you can see what's happening in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Most of our stores are like that, right? And we've always felt if we, you know, are honest and invest in a relationship with our guests, that that, that will pay dividends over the long term, right? Those are people that'll incorporate us into their, into their life as people that'll be proud to serve our food to their families. And so, you know, we'll just build a long-term relationship with them. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've never sought to hide anything in anything that we do. Uh, and that helps with brand partners too, right? Cause that's what they want. They want, they want their food being served from somewhere they're proud for it to be served from. Absolutely. And, and not to like kind of bash on the competition, but you know, I guess that is one of the biggest problems I think with a company like reef that they've been battling is like, you know, these are all, you know, kitchen pods that are, I mean, who knows how to really classify them? They're not 
food trucks that there are kitchen vessels that sit on parking lots with like gray water removal tanks and all this crap that they have to hook up to it. I guess, what are some of the other things that you've thought in this first principle kind of mindset, you know, when you look at some of the challenges that a lot of other players are having when it comes to scaling and fulfilling all these concepts and trying to scale food like software, mm-hmm. what do you think are some of the other big friction points that you've solved? Yeah. Um, so I think digital customer acquisition is part of that. And then really it's just a focus on operational excellence, right? You know, in restaurants, you're hiring people, you're retraining people, you have staff turnover and what most people have done. Uh, and this is, this is even true, you know, with like existing fast food trains, what they do is they try to simplify the menu as much as possible and just simplify their operations. Um, but you, you can only do that to a point before the consumer stops giving you credit for that. And so what we've always sought to do is, is, is bring technology and operations together so that we can just create an excellent opportunity, uh, excellent experience for our guest. Uh, what that really means is, um, you know, we get into the individual details, right? So how do we, you know, how do we best set expectations with our guests? So when you walk into one of our stores, there's a status board that tells you when your food will be ready, right? We, you know, we use very simple data science regression models to predict ETAs so that we can set an, uh, an accurate ex- expectation with our guests, right? We have invested in our own uh, inventory taking products so we can take it as fast as possible and have highly accurate inventory, even though, you know, we have, ten, you know, let's say roughly 10 times the SKUs that we have to count, right? Mm. Other examples here are, you know, our kitchen display system goes into uh, a more granular level of detail with how to make a dish than uh, a typical off-the-shelf kitchen display system would. Uh, and that's because, you know, we want our staff to be as successful as possible. So uh, we have this concept of, of build notes, which are, are basically individual instructions for how to build a specific dish that um, are dynamic based on how the guest has modified that dish uh, in their order itself. And so... Uh, It's much more of a step-by-step workflow for how to build a dish versus just looking at tickets on a screen. Another thing here is when you have multiple concepts in a single kitchen, the problem of like making sure that uh, you're not forgetting anything or you're handing off the right thing or you're putting the right things in the right bags, handing off to the right people becomes more challenging. And so we've built an opinionated workflow around uh, printing labels, basically, where cooks are confirming when they've completed a dish, we print a label with that. And that label is helping the expo make sure the right things are going in the right bags. And then uh, the final thing I'll say is, uh, you know, those are some of the proactive things, but then in a reactive sense, you know, we're using the data from our kitchen display system. We have attribution of like who was working at what stations at what times, and we can tie those to issues or things that may have gone wrong. And so we have a training team internally that, you know, we'll retrain our staff, they'll go into the stores, and we use that data to, to basically prioritize where to focus and focus on retraining our staff. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like so different night and day, like, just like you said about building like stuff from scratch versus us taking things off the shelf, like, you know, allows you to be so much more agile and, and really think about designing the, the right thing from the ground up versus, you know, totally right now, something that's like very popular in this space is like using computer vision to make sure that the employee is doing their job. And it's like, sometimes <laughs> I wonder if that, if that is actually the best way to do it, or should we just build better systems, you know, as opposed to just like tacking on this thing that's like uh, supposed to improve your ROI of your chargebacks or your complaints or your inaccurate orders. And it's just sometimes funny to see how like people just add more crap onto the pile versus actually solving the core issue. Yeah. I mean, we tend to think, um, you know, it actually just all starts from building a great place to work, 
right? Painting a great career path for people so that they're passionate about the job. And, you know, they, they, they feel that as the company grows, that's going to create more opportunities for them. Ultimately, you know, people do their best work when they're passionate about what they're working on and they're, and they're having fun. And so, you know, we've tried to create that kind of environment and culture in our stores with our staff. Awesome. Um, super important these days. When you were talking about like the drive through, like the in and out example, the transparent window, are you thinking about other formats? And I guess, can you talk about, you know, like drive through and, and can you talk about um, the new stores you're about to open in a week or so and, and kind of the, the, the plan, the roadmap at a high level from there? Yeah. So our next location will be Davis, California. And then from there, we have Campbell coming up, uh, which is a, this kind of a suburb of San Jose, uh, Mill Valley coming up in the future. Uh, and then our first LA location is actually going to be in Huntington Beach. And we have several more locations planned in LA. We actually just opened a small office there. Uh, so we are hiring in the, in the LA market as well as San Francisco. You know, a lot of our, our focus on expansion in, in the Southern California market will be kind of Orange County broadly in uh, that part of the city. Interestingly, is there a specific reason why there versus uh, my neck of the woods? <laughs> One of the things that we look at when we prioritize markets is um, like number of QSRs per, per capita and um, QSRs within mm. uh, a specific drive time. And, you know, we felt like a lot of homeowners there, a lot of residential, re- residential density, um, high household incomes, um, but pretty low competitive intensity. So uh, mm. kind of going back to that early thesis about, you know, demographics are driving demand for new selection in the suburbs. Uh, Orange County is an incredible market for that. Interesting. So will yeah. any of the San Francisco um, Bay Area brands kind of want to tap into that? Are you going to do some of that and then most, the majority of it be local or how are you looking at this whole other part of California, um, as far as like, you know, how, how to expand your, your footprint? Yeah, great question. So, uh, in every market that we enter, you know, there's always going to be a focus on, uh, working with local brands and help them, you know, brands native to that region and helping them expand. But I'm sure that you'll definitely see some, some Southern California brands entering, uh, or Southern California brands entering Northern California with us and vice versa. Uh, and it's definitely definitely positive feedback we hear from our brand partners that that's something they'd like to see from us as well. Yeah, there's a there's a Y Combinator startup called Locale that is um, based here in LA that's doing um, they're taking like boy chick bagels in San Francisco or like it's in Berkeley I think and like bringing them once a week frozen over to LA and vice versa and like kind of allowing you know foodies in the Bay Area to eat the best of Southern California and vice versa and I think. You know, as the kind of dark, I wouldn't call your infrastructure dark, but as like the delivery pickup online infrastructure matures, we're going to see more of this kind of innovation where people who uh, were prohibited, you know, who were, you know, limited by what was in their neighborhood previously before uh, this explosion of growth and off premise are now going to be able to have a lot of interesting regional food uh, at their fingertips. So, you know, like someone like myself would think that I think that San Francisco has the better burritos, but I think we we dominate when it comes to sushi. And then someone (laughs) in San Francisco might think, I don't know what they think, but I'm sure there's things that they might want to get from LA. So that's, that's interesting to hear. Yeah. You know, this expectation of selection, we've seen this in um, basically every other category of commerce that happens on the internet. And, um, you know, kind of going back to my earlier point, it's just, uh, you know, up to now, it's been an infrastructure problem with food. And so now that infrastructure is coming online, that'll allow for the same kind of experiences in food. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what that's what keeps me hopeful, and that's what you know obviously draws me to the space. Um, I definitely want to open it up for Q and A from the audience. If there's anyone who has any questions, we have one coming in from Ben who says, "Hi, Jordan. What would you say has been the most successful guest experience feature that Local Kitchens has to offer?" Yeah, so I, I think of it in terms of the overall end-to-end experience. I think the really magical thing here is like when you browse a menu for the first time, you find something that you're excited about. You place an order uh, and then you come pick it up and it's like it's being bagged up the moment you walk in and it gets handed off to you and you go home and enjoy it with your family. You know, that selection plus convenience just creates magic for people. Yeah, no one likes a, a soggy uh, burrito sitting on the shelf for, you know, 30 yeah. minutes before they go and pick it up. In the future, though, I'm excited for us to, um, you know, continue investing in, in, in those kind of features, things like digital drive through and curbside pickup. Do you think that you're going to have like, so formats where you're going to have some quasi drive through type of situation? Are you looking at that as an option or is there anything you can kind of share as far as where we might find local kitchens um, as far as a retail presence in the future? You know, we're absolutely excited about those those kind of things. I think, um, you know, the more optionality you have for convenience, the more day parts you can serve and, you know, just the the more need states you can serve for, uh, for your guests. Yeah, I mean, I, I recently wrote about uh, one of my favorite concepts, which is Dutch Brothers, which is using a kind of modular prefab Very to cool. do um, yep. stuff in parking lots. And I think um, my bet is that, you know, I think I actually think like gas prices are going to to be a boon for these kinds of concepts because they're already inside of the malls where you're going to go and consolidate trips. So you don't have to kind of like go and, you know, do some run off to some random location just to pick up your food. It's already kind of going to be there and it's going to be more visible because it's not in line with all the other tenants. It's actually on its own little plot in the, in the parking lot. So I'm pretty excited about the, about that as a kind of modern ghost kitchen or micro food hall kind of concept. Um, I'm kind of curious to, to put it back to you and to see, what you what your predictions are for the industry over the next I don't know five I don't know however long we can predict out but um, what what are your thoughts on kind of where we're at with the current state of delivery I know um, the macroeconomic kind of outlook on our sector is um, kind of been a little dampened lately by some some of the you know broader uh, economic trends but where do you see this heading as far as um, you know, innovation in the space as far as building kind of the next generation of, of, of kitchens for, for pickup and delivery. Uh, the broader trend here that I think is, is very resilient to all kinds of macro conditions is um, just the decline in cooking at home, right? That is a mm. trend that's been playing out over the course of decades through multiple economic cycles at this point. And so the thing that I see really happening in the future is a, uh, we are going to see an increasingly vibrant creator economy around food. You know, right now, you know, we're building out our infrastructure. Eventually, you know, we'll have thousands of locations across the country. And I think what that really represents is a a platform for food creators to launch and scale brands on top of. And we've heard this uh, anecdotally from existing brand partners, you know, where people have said things like, I can't wait for a world where, you know, this becomes my primary growth channel, right? Uh, so I think of it as like analogous to, to, to things like Shopify that have powered other creator economies on the internet. Uh, food is just a special kind of product that requires special infrastructure. But once we have it, you know, that'll be the default way that people create, uh, that, that food entrepreneurs, you know, create and scale brands. So that world of a, um, 
you know, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier where we're living through this Cambrian explosion of food right now, but uh, I think that still pales in comparison to what we're going to see several years in the future once this, once this economy continues to evolve and come online. So like V1 of, of local kitchens, let's say that's where we are right now, is about scaling existing brick and mortar brands um, through kind of this kind of CapEx light or CapEx free model, right? Where you're co-located and you're essentially licensing the brand to you guys who are executing it and making it work for this new format. And then the next generation, future generation of this is really looking at concepts that may not come from the land of brick and mortar. They're just entirely new digital only concepts, kind of like what we've seen with the likes of uh, virtual brands, but obviously very different in the sense that it's on your platform and you can be experienced through all these different channels. Would that be kind of fair to say? Well, I don't see it as either or, right? I think um, I think there's always going to be a market for brick and mortar concepts, and um, there's always going to be local heroes that are that are growing through brick and mortars. I think, and you know, if I go ten years into the future, I just think we'll be in a world where the default place to you know to found and launch a brand is is something like local kitchens, and that's what people think of first. You know, the retail analogy here is we've seen several companies that have started as uh, direct to consumer brands, but then they've gone and you know started retail locations down the road. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say one expansion strategy is is, is ever going to, um, you know, remove the importance of the other, but I, I think we'll see the default mode shift. Yeah, it's like a very interesting, like Swiss Army knife set of, of kind of value propositions for different types of operators. A newer operator might want to de-risk their concept on delivery and pickup before they, you know, go and, and put a million dollars into launching a brick and mortar or whatever it costs these days. And Mm -hmm. somebody who's already got a mature brick and mortar concept may not want to spend, you know, six figures, seven figures on a new store just to unlock more delivery capacity. So it's all these different kind of use cases kind of converging. It's on a, Mm -hmm. it kind of seems like in the future for you guys. And you, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you kind of hinted at like the, the, the virtual brands that are like celebrity driven or, you know, mm-hmm. f- sort of founded by, um, you know, let's say YouTube influencers or something like that. Uh, I, I think what's going to change is that uh, we will see native food influencers, basically, like people who mm-hmm. come from the food industry that have become influencers mm-hmm. that are starting their own brands. That, that's like the trend that uh, I really believe in in the future of food. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we, uh, I, me too. And that's why I'm here. And I think we're going to see, um, uh, you know, uh, that that improves accessibility if you can have a chef that has a, you know, a high touch, high price point concept, figure out a, uh, something that works for delivery. You know, yep. maybe they have their retail experience center where it's, you know, the tasting menu that's on talk and you got to spend, you know, a hundred dollars, a hundred some odd dollars a person to, to eat there. But then you also have this like quick serve format and not everyone can be David Chang in 2022, but as more platforms like yours evolve, you're kind of helping those uh, restaurateurs like step up and kind of create those portfolios. Yep. And I think that's always going to be our focus is, is uh, helping and enabling, um, you know, restaurateurs and food entrepreneurs. Kind of on that thread, just to pull on it a little bit more. What about CPG as a, as a, as a mix of in, in, in your kind of product um, selection there? Or do you think that's going to become something bigger where you can start to become more of like a micro fulfillment player at the last mile? You know, we'll see. Uh, it hasn't been a, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we've done it to date to the degree that it helps us, you know, serve some of the, 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 the local merchants and partners that we work with. Uh, and so it has a lot of great properties, right? It's a great kind of incremental add on to carts for, uh, for guests. And 
you know, tends to be high prime margin, right? A lot of times there's not a lot of labor uh, required for this and it grows your AOVs as a result uh, and helps with overall profitability. So, you know, definitely will not be a main focus of ours in the near future, but, um, uh, you know, we're definitely excited to, to, to help great local CPG brands and, you know, create incremental sales for them and us. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I always love chatting with you, Jordan. And I, I want to give you a, a couple minutes here to plug away at, you know, some of the, the career opportunities and uh, some of the locations that you have. If people want to come and check out local kitchens uh, in their hometown or they want to come work for you, how do they get uh, in touch here? Yeah, so today you can find us in uh, Lafayette, California, Cupertino, Palo Alto, Mountain View, San Jose, Los Gatos, and uh, Roseville, just outside of Sacramento, and um, continuing to expand throughout the Bay Area and, and uh, soon Southern California as well. Um, we've got an office here in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, and you know we're hiring across everything from uh, engineering, design, uh, real estate, uh, strategy and operations, uh, and for our culinary teams as well. So, um, you know, if you're excited about this future of food and uh, looking to try something new, uh, don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, you can reach me at jordan at localkitchens.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at Jordan Bramble. Amazing. Well, thank you again. And I'm very much looking forward to driving down to Huntington when you guys are live and uh, seeing what you guys have in store for SoCal. Matt, thanks. Uh, thanks a ton for having me when, um, you know, when we get open in Southern California, we'll, uh, we'll send you send you an invite to the grand opening. Amazing. Okay, cool. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks again for taking the time, Jordan. Same to you. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry With No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter. 